Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to the third season of Case Studies in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. Today, our new expert panel of Dr. Cecilia Ketting, Walt Whitley, and Marjan Farid deliberate on the myriad of interesting cases across the ocular surface spectrum. In our first case, Dr. Cecilia Ketting discusses a patient with no relevant ocular history. Hi, I am Dr. Cecilia Ketting. I practice at Hindsight in Denver, Colorado. And my case today, we're going to be talking a little bit about ocular surface disease and blepharitis. So patient presented 54-year-old white male in for yearly IMCM, and he was really coming in just because he's noting some blurred vision intermittent that fluctuates. Pressing a little bit, we ask him, it's been ongoing for about two to three months, and he also notices that when he wakes up in the morning, his eyes are a little bit sticky. No ocular history uh, that we know of or that he knows of. Medical history does have hypertension and high cholesterol, but nothing as far as any kind of systemic or uh, more autoimmune issues, is on a few medications for those systemic issues as well, and does not have any known allergies. So when we get him under the slit lamp, we start to take a peek, and what we see is here, we're noticing some staining more inferior one-third of the cornea. So we want to get a little bit more testing and figure out way, maybe, you know, what else is going on so that we can discuss with him as possible options for treatment. We did a speed score, it was fine, so nothing too big. You know, he really wasn't making big complaints about what he was noticing. We also noticed under the slit lamp, he had a decreased T-butt at six seconds in the right eye, five seconds in the left. And when we pushed on the meibomian glands, we did notice that there was slightly turbid expression. However, it was pretty easy to go ahead and, and get out. Um, our biographer was broken that day, so we didn't get any imaging. Otherwise, I would have loved to have seen that. And underneath the slit lamp, so I always make sure that I have my patients not only look straight ahead, but then look down. And this is why. We see when we have the patient look down, quite a bit of colorets as well as uh, a, a good amount, a good healthy amount of uh, blepharitis and debris that's there. So Walt and Marjan, what would you do? What's your thoughts here? Hi, Cecilia. This is such a great case because, you know, you, you won't catch this degree of blepharitis and all those colors unless you have the patient look down, right? Absolutely. And so we see these patients who are not necessarily in our mind, high risk category patients, but they have significant um, tear film instability from just lipid layer and meibomian gland disease. And yeah. often the underlying cause will be this type of blepharitis, which I know you're going to discuss, but um, so, so important. And, and since I've been asking patients to look down, I'm like, oh my God, there's so much of this out there. And not until late in disease will these patients become symptomatic. So it's really important to start identifying these early. Absolutely. And I think it's almost disturbing how much you realize when you have these patients start looking down, how much you probably were missing prior to having them do this. Yeah. You know, Cecilia, I was doing a prevalence study and uh, looked at 180 consecutive patients and I had them look down to determine was there a presence of cholerets? Yes or no? Were they on any uh, lefitograss, cyclosporin? And what we found is about 
it seemed like everybody had uh, colorettes and, and demodex, but roughly it was about 42% of my patients, yeah. consecutive patients had it. And so that's, that was surprising. That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. The bigger study, you know, because there, there were several sites, it ended up being about 58% of patients did have the colorettes as well. Yeah. So you have to have them looked down. Now, what's your guys' go-to as far as at least at home treatment for these patients um, with what they should be using for cleaning this up? Yeah, so I, you know, in these patients, the challenge is compliance. Um, you know, the the only thing we have right now are sort of these um, uh, tea tree oil uh, active ingredient. I, I use something like Clearidex or OcuSoft Oust. Um, you know, something with that active ingredient of tea tree oil. And I, and I discuss this with patients, but compliance is, is the biggest challenge with these patients because they'll do it for a period of time and then they'll stop. Now they can back down. I say, you know what, at least start aggressively and then you can back down uh, over time as things get better, but you can't really stop um, because they do tend to regrow pretty quickly if you, if you don't keep it going. There's exciting things that are hopefully in the near future, looking forward to having more therapeutics for this disease. For me, it depends on how much I see on that, what, uh, you know, how many cholerets they have, because it's, you know, if it's moderate to severe, the compliance is going to be poor. And even if they're compliant, it's still going to be there when they come back and we look. And so that's where someone like uh, microblepharal exfoliation, you know, I just say, hey, look at the amount that you have. We have to do this in office. Uh, but, you know, if it's mild, I'll, I, I, I will do an at-home therapy, but uh, the compliance is going to be low. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely agree. And so with this patient, what we did was we went ahead and yeah, we've got the diagnosis of the blepharitis demodex, um, dry eye syndrome. So if you notice in the picture, that patient actually has their mask on. And so I've also noticed over the last couple of years, not only am I better at identifying this, but I feel like I am seeing more in it. It makes sense with our masks. It is blowing that air straight from our mouth up, which is unfortunately filled with bacteria. And what's the food source for our Demodex? More bacteria. So I had the patient start with uh, warm compresses because we did have a little bit of turbid expression um, just to make sure that we're increasing the blood supply to the area. We are helping to liquefy any potential clogged glands and then doing a lid massage twice a day. Had them also start with, similar to what you guys were discussing, Optase um, containing tea tree oil twice a day. And typically I do similar. I have them be more aggressive, especially this patient with that many cholerets twice a day for two weeks, and then relax back down to one time a day. And depending on how they're doing, I may actually switch them over to a non-tea tree oil, but you know what, these, these treatments at this point are becoming a little less irritating to the eye um, compared to when we first started using tea tree oil with clear ducts. Uh, there are more options that have a lower percentage that aren't quite as irritating, as well as some of them are starting to put things like coconut oil in there, which is more soothing to the skin when we're adding this irritant. Uh, also talk to this patient about omega-3 fatty acid supplements and getting them started on that and went ahead and put them on uh, lodopredinol uh, for four weeks just to calm it down because it was all pretty irritated and I like to put a little steroid on there to calm things down. Regardless, yes, compliance is always an issue. So this patient came in for blepharic exfoliation. We did a blepex on them using tea tree oil gel uh, about one to two weeks after I saw them. Just to also, you know, you can scrub and scrub all you want, but getting a biofilm off and really getting all of these collarettes is very difficult at home, 
even for a really compliant patient. So how did our patient do? Well, about four to six weeks later, they came in, vision had stabilized, the patient didn't really notice that they were having stickiness in the morning anymore. And on slit lamp exam, we didn't have any collarettes that were there. So checked them at the time of the blood flow exfoliation, everything was clear. And four to six weeks later, we didn't um, have any that were coming back, which was wonderful. No corneal staining, tear breakup time was much better. And then had them come back in about four to six months uh, just to monitor and hopefully my mobographer won't be broken at that point. I think this is such a great point that you started that steroid because these patients do have flares more often, I think. So yes, you have to treat the underlying, obviously the blepharitis, but they, because of their chronic MGD and blepharitis, they get inflammatory, uh, you know, cytokines released into their tear film and it sort of becomes a vicious cycle and you sort of hit that and stop that inflammatory cycle with, with a pulse of steroids. So I love that you did that. That was really good. Yeah. And then my comment was, you know, that first picture you showed, you, you mentioned the inferior third had corneal staining and the symptoms were also in the morning. And so whenever I hear that, yes, we do think blepharitis and you know, more commonly demodex as well, but nocturnal ligophomos. And so that's why when it said no corneal staining, I'm like, okay, well, then we, we were pretty good there, but that's something that always needs to be in our differential whenever we see the, hear those symptoms, but also see those signs on that. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, especially that inferior one third. And we know that that's pretty um, pathognomonic for that. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Walt and Marjan, for joining me today with my case. I really appreciated your comments and your feedback and insights as to how to care for our patients. In this next session, Dr. Walt Whitley presents a complex case of a patient with constantly fluctuating vision. Hi, my name is Walt Whitley and I practice at Eye Care Associates of Nevada in Sparks, Nevada. Uh, today our case is a 84-year-old white female who presents for a dry eye follow-up. Their symptoms are constant and moderate. The vision fluctuates daily. Been on cyclosporin 0.05% off and on for a couple years. Tried plugs, I'm pretty sure uh, for you two, these are the same patients you've had in your chair today as well. Uh, ocular history you can see has had cataract surgery history of styes, amblyopia, and you can see the rest of the medical, medical history. And so, you know, for you all, you know, we all have this patient that's been on cyclosporin off and on, tried plugs, you know, what, 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 what comes to mind for you all? What are your first thoughts on how you address this? Yeah, thank you, Walt. You're absolutely right. This is a very common type of patient, older female patient, um, who has a multiple, you know, multiple things, probably mixed, you know, evaporative and aqueous deficient, um, has history of styes, which means there's some meibomian gland disease as well. So um, these patients are really common. We see them in the cataract setting for me. And um, sometimes they're not super symptomatic, but they do keep failing treatments uh, or or, or coming off treatments. Again, a compliance uh, sometimes is an issue to maintain these patients on long-term um, therapy. So they come on and off when they're feeling better, they forget to use their drops. So, you know, I think sometimes, um, you know, with these patients addressing their flares of their disease um, becomes important because maintaining them on a long-term anti-inflammatory sometimes is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Cecilia? Yeah, I agree. You start looking at the things such as fluctuating and the rosacea and styes, and I start thinking more about the meibomian glands and, and what might be going on there, as well as, you know, 
it probably is combination both aqueous and um, you know, evaporative. And, and that's most of the cases, honestly. I find that it's not usually just one or the other in the majority of my patients, especially as we get up in age. Uh, so this would be a patient I'd be starting to think about what's going on with their glands and how do they look. Mm -hmm. And you know, we often get this patient off and on for about two years, but then they just quit doing it altogether. We have other patients that, oh, I've tried this therapy. It didn't work. You know, it's always about, well, tell me more. How did you use the drops? You know, I had a patient today that said, oh, you know, I tried cyclosporin for about two weeks and it didn't work. So I stopped. I said, well, because it's not going to work in two weeks. You may start to notice more tears within the first couple of weeks. But, you know, as the medication takes effect, that's where we're going to get increase in tears as well as tear production, as well as addressing your, your symptoms and signs. And so we're going to take a look at the examination itself. And when we take a look at the exam, here you can see the mybography. And you, you're looking at the images of the glands. I mean, what? how big is mybography to you all? And how often uh, are you doing it on, on your patients? What about your cataract patients or your LASIK patients there? Yeah, so we do have mybography, and I try to capture it on most patients, especially in the pre-surgical setting. Some, some for me to have a, a knowledge of their glands, although I, I sort of assess that at the slit lamp as well, but also as a big tool to help educate the patient. A picture is worth a thousand words. When they see their glands, they see dropout, you're going to see an uptick in compliance. They sort of become an active part of their treatment. Um, they sort of don't believe me when I tell them by just slit lamp, but when I show them, it really, it really goes a long way. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Same thing. Um, I'm trying to use it on, especially all new patients, contact lens patients, um, anybody where we know uh, that they are higher risk of having some mybomian gland dropout, uh, anybody who's got a complaint, but yes, absolutely. It helps so much to have a picture to show them what's going on and be like, Hey, do you see what, what's going on here? And where you've already lost or see that it's overfilled. And you can imagine when something can't do its job, the body just stops it. So it really gets them on board with understanding why we're doing these things and why we're giving them these specific treatments and it makes it much easier. And I think I'm, or at least I hope it makes the compliance a lot better as well. Yeah. My, my bobian gland imaging is huge. I mean, it's essentially the vital sign of dry eye. Hey, this is what, it, what's going on. This is what we need uh, to address. And so for new patients, of course, if it's a dry eye evaluation, that's what I'm going to make sure I, I, I do for that patient. But for any of the patients I've been seeing, whether it's diabetes, whether they're there for what a macular degeneration or whatever they're there for, I do make sure we at least do at least one image of the mybomian glands because uh, you know, we have all those asymptomatic patients and it's only non-obvious if we're not looking. And so that's why I've, I've incorporated it into all of my patients at least once. What is the next step? They're on and off for cyclosporin. They did have positive MMP9 as well. Um, the osmolarity, I didn't test on, the, on this visit. So we have inflammation, we see the glands. What are your thoughts or what is, what is your next step? And I'll start with you, Cecilia. Yeah, I, so we wanna get these patients under control. So I think starting with a topical steroid to start to calm down that inflammatory cascade, which we know just is feeding back into the problem and then addressing with some at-home uh, homework that they're gonna have long-term uh, such as warm compresses, lid scrubs. Even if you don't see bacteria buildup, I still think it's really important to promote 
keeping that from happening. And then also uh, getting them on nutraceuticals, your omega-3. And then especially this patient with the way it looks, bringing them back in, they're going to need some blood flow exfoliation and thermal pulsation. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Yeah, I completely agree. This is definitely an inflammatory process. Sometimes it's a challenge to get these patients back on a long-term treatment uh, because they take a while to kick in, right? You want something quick and fast that's going to kick in, cool down the inflammatory process, um, get the cytokines cooled off in the tear film. And, and there's nothing as good as a steroid, honestly, for that. Um, but I will, you know, often say, we'll, we'll start the steroid, give it about two weeks, um, two to four weeks. Sometimes I'll do longer depending on the degree of inflammation, but then at the same time, start a long-term anti-inflammatory in these patients who are more chronic dry eye, um, patients, they, they often need both, but then I have them also cycle the steroid, um, if they have recurrent flares throughout their disease, or if they feel like, oh, the, the cyclosporin isn't working anymore. I say, it's not that it's not working. It's that you have, you're having a flare. So you might want to repulse that steroid for another week or two to help get that under control. Do you do those concurrently? Do you, do you have them do the steroid and the restasis? Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes you have to cool down the ocular surface to, to give them a, a chance to tolerate um, the long-term anti-inflammatory cyclosporin or lefitograss because they can burn on these patients who are so hot, everything burns, even artificial tears sometimes burn. So, I mean, it really depends on the patient and how, how hot their eye is. And so here, this was the assessment. Uh, you can see they had some dryness, had some MGD. So I did start a steroid on this patient, did want to address the acute inflammation that was found on the MMP9 testing. And just like you mentioned there, Cecilia, you know, this is basic for any of my dry patients. Prescribe a heat mask, a washcloth doesn't work. Do something to take care of the lids for the lid hygiene, the hypochlorous acid. Do omega, prescribe an omega supplement uh, for your patients. Don't tell them to go to the pharmacy. Tell them the one that you feel is best for them. But then also prescribe thermal pulsation because, you know, looking at those glands already, uh, we knew that there was an issue. I pressed on them. I uh, did get some cloudy secretions coming out. So we knew that they needed thermal pulsation. So I was able to, to be one of those that had the early experience with this. We can take videos of our patients during the expression. And so talk about buying. We showed them this is your gland before treatment. This is your glands after treatment. And so when they see this, this is going to help them understand this is the reason why they were having so many issues. And so we did the we did the thermal pulsation, brought the patient back in four to six weeks, and you can see that the symptoms did improve. Yes, still had MGD, but we did have improved uh, expression. The cornea was much clearer. Uh, so majority of my patients, whenever I'm treating, I always treat the inflammation, but I always do treat the meibomian glands, the improvement uh, under the assessment had them finish the steroid, but continued with the, the baseline treatment with the heat, nutraceuticals, and then also prescribing a tier, a lipid-based tier, such as a sustained complete, and then follow up in four to six months. Uh, so any comments on that? Would you all have done anything different? No, that's perfect. Yeah, that's a great case. It really highlights how you have to hit both the inflammation and the lids in, in many of these patients. That's a great case. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think the last thing just to comment on this 
is with that video, going back to that patient education and buy-in, we know that this is not gonna be a one-time treatment. They're going to need it again. It's just, we don't know when that's gonna be, whether it's six months, whether it's a year, but this is something that's gonna help the patient understand the why of why we do things. In the final case, Dr. Marjan Farid discusses a patient that came into the office with tear-induced skin irritation. Hi, my name is Marjan Farid. I'm the Director of Cornea, Cataract, and Refractive Surgery at the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute at UC California, Irvine. Okay, so here we have a 57-year-old woman um, presenting with significant ocular burning and increased tearing. So those are her two main symptoms. Um, so her job, she is an administrative assistant. So she spends many hours at the computer all day. And she's basically saying she's gotten to the point where her symptoms are preventing her from reading comfortably. Her tears are causing skin irritation. And when we sort of delve into her past medical history, um, she does have seasonal allergies as well. So she uses oral antihistamines frequently um, for most of the spring and summer months. And again, she's just very emotional. She's kind of depressed. She has mild depression. She feels she cannot go on with her job and she's really uh, unhappy. When we sort of do this ocular surface assessment um, and we look at um, things like fluorescein staining, she doesn't have any fluorescein staining on her cornea. And so um, I actually go back and use lysamine staining for these patients because they're very symptomatic. I'm not picking up stain with fluorescein, but we know there's something going on. So let me just turn it over to my colleagues here. Cecilia, do you, what do you use for staining um, on these patients? Are you always reaching for fluorescein or do you uh, do lysamine? First off, I always do fluorescein. Um, I it just looking for the most obvious thing. I do as well. If I'm not seeing any corneal staining, I will reach for lysamine um, and just kind of see where we're staining and, and where else might be the problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that's how I do it as well. I start with the fluorescein, uh, fluorescein stain because it also helps me capture that tear breakup time. But then if they're not staining, but we know there's something going on, I'm going to pull out that lysamine green stain as well. Walt, do you do that or what's your protocol? You know, I had a patient just like this the other day and had no uh, fluorescein staining, but I did pull out the lysamine green. And so I did get some conch staining, but also the line of marks. And so I had that staining along that uh, along that line. So we know that there was some uh, some issues going on with the ocular surface that need to be addressed. Yeah, no, absolutely. So lysamine green um, stains the degenerated epithelium. Um, fluorescein stain will actually uh, stain the basement membrane where epithelial cells have actually fallen off. So fluorescein staining, if we're picking that up, it's actually a late stage finding. Those patients, you know, have much more moderate to severe disease. Um, but pre prior to that, they'll have degeneration of cells starting on the conjunctiva usually. So she did have significant uh, staining on her conjunctiva, usually in that interpalpebral zone. She did have a rapid tear breakup time. She has some meibomian gland disease. You can see her meibomian gland imaging there. There's some shortening. There's uh, some dropout. Um, and the glands that are there are sort of thickened. So we know there's a degree of evaporative dry eye going on as well. And just like you, Walt, I also, uh, you know, do tear film osmolarity and MMP9 testing. Both of those came out positive. So she's another patient who has sort of this mixed mechanism, um, you know, evaporative inflammatory dry eye disease with some meibomian gland disease as well. So what are her risk factors? Sometimes I like to just sort of assess 
risk score based on the patient that's in front of me. So we know there's multiple triggers of dry eye disease. There could be irritative triggers, right, from the environment. Uh, and we know she has environmental triggers. She's on the computer all the time. Medications, that's another one we want to look at. If you look at things like systemic autoimmune diseases, inflammatory diseases, that can also worsen the picture. She's got allergies. That's the other big one in her. You know, she's already somebody who is sort of revved up. Her immune system is revved up and, and allergies and dry eye. It's almost like a triad for a lot of these ocular surface disease patients. And then, of course, her age, she's in that postmenopausal age. She does have meibomian gland disease, which creates that meibomian gland uh, or lipid layer uh, insufficiency. So if we swing over then to what, what do we do for these patients? So, um, Walt, what, what, where do you start? Where do you start with these patients? Well, you, we, you mentioned those tests, the tear osmolarity and the, the MMP9s. And so we do know that there's uh, inflammation, unstable tear film. And so for me, typically, I'm going to go with an anti-inflammatory such as a steroid, uh, hit it and, and hit it hard. Uh, how long has she had dry eye again? Yeah, it's just been getting worse over the past few years. So, right, this patient is one that hasn't really addressed it. Maybe oh. some palliative artificial tears. And now it's gotten to the point where she can't do her job anymore. Yeah, and it's so, not mm-hmm. yeah and, and so she does have some inflammation, but you also mentioned she does, she does have allergies. And so that I'm going to ask her questions about the allergies. What are your symptoms? Is it is it uh, sinus? Is it more in the throat? Are you having skin issues or what is it? Because sometimes patients would say, oh, it's just my eyes that itch or, or you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, it's just my nose. And I'm like, well, you don't necessarily need an oral antihistamine for that. And so I will address that. If they do need some oral, I would, uh, one of the things I learned from John Shepard and Cecilia did as well, is uh, anecdotally, we had great success with using a singular uh, for our patients and less drying effects on the eye. And so that's something else that I would address that comes to mind for our patients, anti-inflammatories and adjust the uh, allergy bed. Great point. Cecilia, anything else you would add to that? Yeah, it, it's kind of, you start with a few things because it can be a lot if we start all of the things that I know that they need. Um, I'd be throwing an entire book at them of what they need to do. So it's, I think conservatively, absolutely starting with what Walt's doing and then adding things in, letting them know that, hey, it's going to be more at the beginning. But as we kind of calm things down and weed things out, you will have less that you have to do long term. Exactly. No, those are great pearls. So here again, when I sort of go through this in my mind, I'm thinking tear volume, inflammation, lid margin, tear quality, nutrition, what am I going to start with? So again, I'm trying to put my picture, my patient into this sort of clinical picture. She has severe symptoms, tear film markers, seasonal allergies, MGD. So let's go through what we did. So I completely agree with both of you. Stop the offending agents, number one. So go through those uh, oral antihistamines she's on. And we said, you know what? It's your, your symptoms are nasal uh, allergies. Why are you using an oral antihistamine? Let's get you off of that. Go to a nasal corticosteroid spray uh, or you know some other modality that's not the systemic antihistamine. Um, if there's ocular allergies or itching, I may then consider putting her on an, uh, like an ocular antihistamine. But in her case, it was really mainly nasal. So we got her off of those oral antihistamines. Treat the inflammation, right? I think you got to just quiet the eyes down and then start adding things on. So I love lodopredinol um, in this case. 
We have an on-label steroid now, uh, the lodopredinol 0.25%. So I, I tell patients to use it four times a day for the first two weeks. That's when they first start. I want to kind of quench the fire. I say, let's not spit on the fire. Let's quench the fire and then we can back down. Um, I said, use that, but then you can use it periodically for flares or, you know, when you have another exacerbation of your symptoms, you can use it for one to two weeks um, for several times a year. And we started her also on lefitograst at this time because I felt her symptoms are more chronic as well. So, you know, quiet down the inflammation and then put her on something for long-term treatment. And of course, started her on at-home uh, compresses and such for the lid margin disease. So we saw her again at two months. So now she's on lefitograst, warm compresses, nasal spray for her allergies. Um, and, you know, when I talked to her, she said her symptoms are much better. The steroids really helped cool her down. She is taking more breaks at work just to give herself a break from the computer. I tell them 20-20-20 rule. When you're on the screen, every 20 minutes, take a 20-second break, blink 20 times because we know their blink rate is probably decreased and contributing to their uh, symptoms as well. She says she has less tearing. She still has some rough days, you know, and when we retest her MMP9, it's now negative. So I, I do like to do... Uh, retest for MMP9 later on, especially in patients who are positive. Do you guys do that? Yeah. And I do always order as, as a, as a follow-up, but I make sure I write it down to do that test because if I don't, sometimes uh, I'll see a patient that'll be in the chair and that test isn't there. So I'm like, well, I guess we just have to guess that it's better. But I had a patient uh, today that I put on, uh, on steroids and, and had him do it again twice a day. I saw him back six, today was six to eight weeks later. I ordered the MMP9 and it was still bright red. And so I'm like, well, we got to keep you on that steroid. We're going to increase the steroid, uh, uh, check the pressure, of course, make sure the nerve's healthy. But uh, yeah, we just had to keep them on the anti-inflammatory a lot longer aggressively. Yeah, that's a that's a great point too. Sometimes if they have a lot of autoimmune disease too, they, they, they never really go fully negative, but you can also look for how hot pink it is. And if it, if it goes fainter, I know at least there's some therapeutic response there. You know, some of the take-home points here is you know, each patient, each dry eye patient is different. So you have to really look at the patient that's in front of you, look at the specific risk factors, the etiologies for their dry eye disease, and then tailor your, tailor your treatment to address that specific patient. Um, and then a big highlight is don't forget systemic diseases, right? These medications that they might be on, um, other things that might be exacerbating their symptoms. Um, I have a lot of older gentlemen who come in with a similar picture who are very emotional. And one thing I've been testing is testosterone levels. And I don't know if you guys have picked this up, but a lot of the older um, men who have significant ocular surface disease and who have sort of emotional component, they've got, um, you know, systemic decrease in their, in their testosterone. And so getting that treated helps. So look at the systemic uh, picture for your patient as well. So again, I thank you guys for joining me here today. And um, thank you to my um, panelists and colleagues. Thank you to our panel for an engaging and informative discussion, and thank you for listening.